Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. <clears throat> I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 511, for March 4th, 2023. Welcome back. As part of our Women's History Month, we're going to begin an interview with Danielle Romero in her book of Finding Lola. Uh, Lola was her great-grandmother, or was it further back than that? She, yeah, she may be further back than that. It may make to be in a great grade. Yeah, she had moved up north, and in order to, uh, you know, access the uh, advantages in society that uh, whiteness offers, she had passed, and then decades later, her family a little mystified about, you know, their background. And so um, Danielle started researching it and found this rich history that you had to leave behind in order to, uh, you know, to move up the social ladder. So uh, we'll be looking forward to our talk with her in a few minutes. But first, this week in Louisiana history. So, so this week in Louisiana history on March 3rd, 1820, uh, slavery was outlawed within the Louisiana Purchase Territory north of the 36-degree, 30, is that 30 minutes latitude? Is that what that is? Yeah, is that the Mason-Dixon line? Uh, what, yeah, what that is, that's the border of Arkansas and Missouri. Right, I just didn't know if it was also the Mason-Dixon Yeah, I don't, it could be, I don't know. I mean, I know there's one state that I know that would be grouped as really a border state, but they, they had southern sympathizers there with Delaware, but they're actually above the Mason-Dixon line. Right. But they were a slaveholding state. I mean, they had but, you know, people enslaved. Kind of the same idea that as you go north, uh, you're going to not have as much slavery, and then you're going right, to have right. just south. It was All too right. cold to have big farms, really, in most of those places. Yeah. In Maryland. Running the plantations, right. Now, for this week in New Orleans history, um, the Washington Post printed on March 3rd, 1909, the news comes from Louisiana that large areas of that state hitherfore devoted to the growing of cotton will be planted with cane because the boll weevil has wrought such havoc in the former crop. This pest shall be the occasion of diversity of farm crops at the south. His presence in the cotton field will not prove an unmixed evil. So, yeah, um, it was always hard to make money on the farm, but, um, um, you yeah, I know uh, boll weevils continue to be a thing, although you have insecticides now. But uh, well, is, is there a state over in the southeast, someplace like Alabama or Georgia, where they they put up a statue to the boll weevil because they it, that <laughs> that you know that pest had destroyed so many of their cotton crops through the years? So they finally they did what you're talking about the you know the crop diversification they had to uh, to try to survive. Right. Well, now for this week in Louisiana. So this week in Louisiana, the uh, the city of Monroe, so our neighbor, will host the Women's Symposium at Bayou Point Event Center at 100 Warhawk Way in Monroe. As part of ULM's celebration of Women's History Month, the Women's Symposium, in a panelist moderator format, discusses issues women face every day, networking, inclusion, leadership, professionalism, and financial growth. This is on Wednesday, March the 14th of this year, 2023. The time is 12 Hey, I've got the right year this time, Steve. Yes, yes, hot dog. 
it's 12 p.m. to 4:30 p.m. Then there's a network social networking social to follow immediately at 4:30 to 6:30. Uh, there is a website where you can purchase tickets, and there is an early bird, uh, I guess, deal where you can vote if you if you register before the 16th of February. Uh, you are if you're a student, you can get in for free. If you're a faculty staff member, you get in for twenty dollars. Community members get in for thirty five dollars. After the 16th of February, students are still free. Faculty staff pay $25, and community pays $40. So, and there, again, there is a website. This is the, apparently run through the uh, alumni house at ULM. So you can go check that out when we post our show notes, and you can, uh, if you're interested, you can go and, and attend. I'm trying to work out a way in my head to get over there. I know i got classes, but... <laughs> um. All right. So now it's probably a pretty good meeting. I mean, if you're, you know, particularly for local women that want to, you know, engage in, like they say, the networking and so forth. All right. So um, yeah, I, that looks very interesting, and uh, I think uh, if you can go, you should go. Now for this week's postcard from Louisiana, I listened to twins singing a duet on Decatur Street in front of the St. Louis Cathedral.
on to interview with Danielle Romero. We, and, we, we do. and I'm Steve Payne. And we're here today with Danielle Romero. Did I say your name right, Danielle? Yes, you did. Great. Well, welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to have you. Thank you. I am so honored to be included. Howdy. Um, so it's great. Well, thanks. And you've uh, been working on a documentary, Finding Lola, right? Yes, that's right. So Lola is uh, my maternal great-grandmother. It's my mom's grandmother. So did you know her growing up? Like, uh, was she still alive when you were little? She was not, um, which kind of adds to the layer of mystery for me. So she died about a year before I was born. Uh, but she, she was the only grandparent my mother knew. So I heard mm-hmm. a lot about her, um, but what we heard didn't really line up with, I think, the historical Lola. <laughs> right, right. So tell us what the mystery was, why you had to find Lola. So I think I'm still kind of in that, I think maybe it's a liminal space with this. Um, I don't have all the answers yet. I'm still on the journey. But Lola raised us in New York, but she was born in uh, Natchitoches Parish in the 1900, about 1900. She lived there until about 1930. And she married my great-grandfather, who was an Irishman who was from New York. And he was down there working as an engineer, I guess. And they met, and they got married, and they had their first child down there. And for some reason, they decided to move to New York where they had the rest of their kids, where my grandmother was born. And uh, we were raised to be, we, we thought we were French. Oh, wow. So did you know about the Louisiana connection? No. No. Um, and not many people did. It was kind of, she wouldn't talk about it. Um, my mom thought that she was, I think, from France. My other aunt thought she was from Spain. And uh, these were family members who were close to her. And, and after she passed away, um, I started interviewing people. And the stories were so dis- like different that I thought, I need to, I need to dig into this. Yeah, so that, um, that was why the other day, when, when here about three or four days ago when Bruce had, had gotten this official and sent me the, the, um, the notification for my calendar to add you to our schedule, I told him that there are, and, and I'll have to ask you about this in the course of this statement here, but there are a lot of Romeros in and around certain parts of South Louisiana. It's old, it's old South Louisiana Spanish is what it is. And they mm-hmm. are descendants of, I don't know if they're the Islanios or somebody else from mainland Spain. I have but, heard that. Yeah, they are, that, they're, they're old South Louisiana Spanish. Yeah, well, sorry, this is actually my husband's last name, but he's Hispanic. Okay. And uh, he grew up, well, I've known him for a long time. He's known my family. And he, he knew my grandmother, and he always would tell me, I think your family's Mexican. I was like, no, we're French. We're French. And he's like, no, they look a lot like my family. Um, <laughs> so this has been kind of a journey of just uh, working through a very complex heritage because Louisiana just has a lot of layers. Well, um, and was she from the Cane River area? Is that, um, yeah, yes, yes. There were Hispanics, uh, you know, of but Spanish descent and Native American descent that moved into that area too. So there's a, uh, Louisiana is the most mixed race state in the union, and um, we've been at it for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the that was the borderlands area too, because yes, no man's land over well, there. Yeah, exactly. It was the eastern edge of it because if you go immediately to the west to Roveline, that's when you get into the old uh, another old area of Louisiana Spanish. Right. Uh, around Robeline and uh, what's now Toledo Bend Lake. and was, I mean, Yes, 
Sabine River. But yeah, yep. that was. The- I have family out there too, which I found through the course of this. We have family kind of over near um, the Choctaw Apache tribe of Ebarb. Um, uh-huh. So that's almost like almost to Texas, right? And exactly. so this has been a lot. It, there, there's the layers. I'm not sure when they will stop, um, but it's been amazing because I've kind of had to get a survey of Louisiana as I started this journey. So I started out not knowing anything, and um, I still kind of feel like that sometimes. So yeah, I wanted to ask you um, a little bit about your personal life growing up, and then how you got into this subject matter. So. Did you grow up in New York? Um, yes. Yep. Grew up in New York. York. No, um, I was born in Albany, so that's the capital. Albany. It's about two hours um, north of the city, and that's where my mom was born, and that's where my grandmother was born, and um, we thought Lola was from there too. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, it's a long line of being there, and then I found out actually we have a lot of family in, in Louisiana. Oh, um, did she, once she moved, did she uh, pass? That's often the reason that people of color would move away from Louisiana back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my, so the stories I've collected, um, because I actually, uh, I was able to interview her son, so is my great uncle, he's still alive. Oh, cool. And um, she was trying to pass. My understanding was that because the census records, when she was born, she was listed usually as black or mulatto because those were the really the you know, options and you weren't self-identifying at that point. But when she moved to New York, you were able to start self-identifying. Right. So in New York, she identified as white and she identified the children as white. But the crazy, some of the shocks and turns to this where I found out that her children's birth certificates in New York, they're listed as colored. Oh. And um, because you could not identify for your children on the birth certificate. So they would look at your child and kind of just make that determination on their own. So I feel like it's kind of something that just kind of followed her, um, you know, <laughs> wherever she went. So in New York, yeah, we were raised uh, that she was French, and uh, so were we. Well, I don't know if you've heard of the uh, political family, the Landrews. Moonwalk, who was the dad, and he was mayor of New Orleans back in the 60s. Built the Moonwalk, which is a boardwalk along the Mississippi River. And and his daughter, Mary, was a senator. And his son, um, oh, what's his son? Mitch. Mitch. Mitch, yes. Um, He's the one that very famously, uh, you know, really hit the uh, national news when he spearheaded taking down the big Confederate monument around. Right. But within the last few months, Mitch came out with the announcement that he and his family had been passing all of these uh, generations. Um, you know, they are still called who, which is you know, a category uh, that they used back in the day um, in Louisiana. So the whole family had been, you know, uh, doing politics as a white family because, you know, you get more white voters to vote for you that way. Wow. Wow, it's amazing to hear because I, when I started this journey, um, I hadn't been to Louisiana yet. And so I didn't know if this was unique to my family, if this was just an aberration. And I was thinking, how on earth did she pull this off? But she didn't. And they, they actually faced a lot of discrimination in New York for not being white. But the kids, it, it, was, it was just a lot of confusion. You know, you're, you're told you are, but you're not treated right. like you are. Um, but I just had no idea. Uh, Elizabeth Show Mills, actually, I you know read a lot of her stuff, and, and she had a phrase called crossing the color line, 
I had never heard of that before. And, and I think that's when it kind of clicked for me that this is not an aberration. This is oh, actually no. a, a community experience, and we just were removed from the community, so we didn't know. Yeah, this is you're, severed, you're severed from it, yeah. Yeah. And your family's experience of it is very common, too. In order to successfully pass, um, generally two things, because if you stay in town, the people will know you will out you. Um, right. <laughs> there was a, a cause celeb back in the 1800s, this woman named Tukutu, and uh, somebody spot, you know, she was going around as a white woman married to a white man, which was illegal, of course. Uh, and then uh, another black woman called her out in the street, and it, it became a lawsuit, and a big song, and got chapters and books. I think we've got a whole book about it. And um, so, A, you move away, and B, you cut off contact with your family. That is and, exactly what happened. And, and, and the and everything else. Yes, all of it. We never heard about the family. Um, there was not – people would ask, and, it, and she would, don't ask. We're not talking about it. And uh, this hole in your identity, like, who am I? Yeah, so, yeah, that uh, really speaks to me. I mean, I have a goosebumps hearing it because, again, I really thought this was kind of a hard-to-understand situation, and now taking a step back and kind of opening up about it, people are coming out and saying, oh, no, me too, this happened to us, and very similar, mm -hmm. like you're saying, you have to move away, you have to cut ties, and you have to try to, you know, loose lips sink ships. Was my great uncle mm -hmm. told me. <laughs> mm -hmm. so. My um, one of our earlier um, guests, Jari Anara, who's a New Orleans uh, genealogist, and um, you know this is just Monday for him. So somebody calls him <laughs> wanting to find out their mysterious family roots, and they, you know, it's very vague what they do know. And okay, well, let's get down to it. And then all of a sudden, you're connected to this huge family, right? Right. That's how it felt coming down. Um, so I, I made the first trip last year, and then I came again in July to interview more family, and I couldn't believe that there were people in Louisiana who were alive right now who knew Lola and who knew my family. I, I had no idea we were connected to anyone, and um, they seemed to know who they were. <laughs> yeah. Well, and how, was, how did they treat you when you came down? Oh. Um, it was incredible. I, I can't believe the warmth and the welcome. And because I had always wondered, well, maybe she was mistreated in Louisiana, and that's why she didn't want to go back. And the mistreatment really seemed to happen. I think in New York. I think she was just kind of rolling the dice and going to see where can this take me. And that was right. kind of the price she had to pay for that. Um, yeah, but the family was amazing. I still am connected. To, you know, these cousins. I guess everyone's a cousin. Um, <laughs> so I feel like I have you know, dozens of new cousins, and it's, it's wonderful. So how did you start down the trail? Like, um, what was it? You got grown and you started wondering about this. Um, yeah, talk about that, and we'll talk about how you got on to the, the genealogy of your family. Sure, yeah. So I um, started when I was 16. Uh, my grandmother, so Lola's daughter, uh, I would go visit her a lot. She lived in Florida. And, uh, you know, I remember one day we were just hanging out in the kitchen, and I saw a picture of her mother, and I had never seen a picture of her mother, even though I'd heard about it. And when I saw her, I was just like, I don't think this is a white French woman. <laughs> like, she just didn't seem like it to me, and so I started asking some more questions. And the answers were weird. And so I just kind of thought, well, I'll, you know, 
start doing the genealogy and I found the first census records and the family was listed as black or mulatto, I was like, my world was <laughs> rough. Oh, wow. You know, because again, we were told we were French and Irish because Lola married an Irishman. So, you know. Very likely she grew up speaking French. Given she did. Era. She did. So one of the cousins this summer um, grew up with Lola's sister. It was her grandmother. So she was able to share kind of the family experience in Louisiana. She said they spoke, she called it Cajun French. Right. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she said that's what they would speak when they didn't want the kids to understand or they would do their prayers in that language. Um, we didn't know she spoke that at all um, until a census record I saw uh, from the 40s, I believe, maybe it was the 30s or 40s, in New York, and the census record, you know, the, the person taking the census must have asked, well, what's your language, because she had an accent, and she said French. Um, but no one in the family knew that, like, at all. So. so how did you track her back to Louisiana, like, get the locality from uh, where she was really from? Um, the birth, the the records on the, the census records, and um, honestly, I'm not a huge fan of Facebook, but I, it has been invaluable to this journey. Really? So I made a, I made an account, and I was able to connect with um, family through Facebook, and I went down to visit them. So these would be um, Lola had a brother named Albert, and uh, I guess they used to write when she was in New York. But I met Albert's children. And so I got to visit with them and just kind of hear about their experience in Louisiana. Cause I, it's like, well, one of you, one of the kids stayed, one of them left. And, uh, they laughed when they found out that she was trying to pass as French. They couldn't believe it. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're kind of like, how did that work out for her? <laughs> but it's all through Facebook. And so I, you know, That's I don't really... know. So, it's, so you, you know. just started looking up last names and for, you know, yeah. People's names and then checking that with, are they around? Oh, now? yeah. I mean, you have to be okay to get ignored. I would just send messages out to anyone. And then, you know, I did the ancestry trees and just kind of, it takes a long time. <laughs> There's a lot of mistakes, um, you know, but it's interesting because the more knowledge I've gotten, I, I, I still haven't gotten the um, cleanly packaged identity that I was hoping to get. And I'm realizing that's because that's more of a community experience that we just didn't have. So that's kind of where I'm at right now is how do you, what do you do with this when you weren't raised with it? And uh, what is this anyway? (laughs) Yeah. Let's go back to your kind of your part of your origin story. Uh, I had seen a couple of clips on YouTube that you'd posted up there about your search and so forth. Had you had any experience when you were, say, a kid, like in your teens or 20s even, uh, <clears throat> about shooting documentary film? Or I mean, oh, how, no. How did, you, how did you turn to, to doing it <laughs> by film? But really, not doing it, say, in prose, you know, like a prose work, like a memoir or something like that. Yeah, nope. I uh, I love stories. I've always loved stories. I My undergrad was uh, in uh, French literature and Russian literature, but mostly mostly Russian. And um, so I've always loved storytelling. And... But I, I knew nothing about this until, like, we, we bought a camera maybe six or seven months ago because I wanted to record the interviews with family. Right, right. And then once we started recording them, I was like, I want to record them, but I want them to look beautiful, too. <laughs> and right. really, like, honor the story. So this is me learning that because I care about telling the story. And so this is my first dive into that world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and... Uh... It sounds like it was a 
you know, a real journey for you personally, as well as just finding out about uh, your ancestors. Yeah, I, I think what's hard is, um, so we were raised white, and I think yeah. it's a pretty typical white upbringing. I mean, I lived in a uh, diverse area, but, you know, you were raised white, but growing up, uh, and even now, like, I'll have people stop and ask me if I'm Puerto Rican, they're talking in Spanish, or they're this or that, and I've never really had a good, like, I don't know, so... So we ended up taking a DNA test, um, which kind of confirms, you know, all of these things. But it's it's strange because I want to honor um, my ancestors because I found like a, I have ancestors that I found their slave records like as slaves in Louisiana. So well, like there's a you know things like that. A real benefit when you're doing that kind of research in Louisiana because a lot of the records are in French. Yes. Which is hard. <laughs> it's hard. Um, thankfully, again, Elizabeth Schoen Mills has done a lot of work to make those more accessible. For sure. Wait, is is she the genealogist? Is that right? Yes. For, yeah. For she. Because I've seen she, her online before, but I don't know her or anything. Oh I've seen, yeah. I've seen the name. Her work is incredible. It was actually her husband. Um, she did it with her her late husband, and now she's kind of. Um, taking it on herself, but she has a lot of work about like the Creole community in the area, and she goes through the old French church records. She translates them, and I've learned a lot about my family because of her. So, right, credit to her for a lot of that because um, you know she put the work out there, and it was just kind of there to be found. They so, kept really extensive records. I mean, Bruce and I went down, like I said, to Robling, and a lot of that is thanks to the Catholic Church. And they had a whole taxonomy laid out about, you know, what was a mulatto and what was a yeah. <laughs> and I mean, really, it was it was really detailed. And we saw this at the the old Spanish uh, site, uh, well, Los Adias, at the old yeah. port. I don't know if you've been to Los Adias at all, but I mean, you may have relatives even that because they they actually there actually are living descendants of those people around around Robeline. Uh, at Spanish Lake community and, and several other little communities around there, they are the descendants of those Osadia settlers, and they go back probably to the 1740s or 50s, so it's well before the Revolutionary War. Oh, yes. I actually I haven't gotten to go there in person, but I have found great, 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 great grandparents that came from those, like, presidios and almost uh-huh. like the missions, um, mm-hmm. which is, like, again, so that's, like, another – another you know, okay, so you have, like, the African Creole thing, and then there's, like, this, and then, you know um, – so it really is, I know people joke about, you know, it's the gumbo, you know, <laughs> situation, but right. really it feels like everything got thrown in the pot. And uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I guess at this point I still don't know what I don't know. I just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> still working through it. But, you know. Do I not know to ask? That haunts my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. Um, I think the thing, like, going back to, like, the Russian literature, like, I love Dostoevsky, and I feel like uh, – one of the things I've learned from reading his stuff is like every character has a secret. You know, there's always a secret. And, right. and you know, our families are no different. Like I think we all kind of have big stories and big secrets. We just may not have done enough digging to find them, but they're there. And they're interesting, and I think they're worth preserving, you know. Well, I was wondering, um, in addition to the, um, the, the interviews, um, were the uh, written records, where do you find them? Like, what institutions house these records that you, like, walk in a room and here's all this stuff? Or, or is it mostly online nowadays? 
Um, well, I, I think a lot I've done online, um, but now that I'm making trips to Louisiana, I'm trying to kind of, you know, get my hands on, like, hard copies. You know, stuff online is not always totally trustworthy. But that's definitely where I've started from. Like I said, people have – I had no idea people were, like, doing this work for so long because we thought this stuff was just gone forever. And uh, like you said, things have been so well-preserved and now being put online. Um, yeah. But I think the oral history is kind of the thing that I'm trying to focus on now of yeah, getting older people to sit down and remember for me. Right. I mean, literally perishable. People, you know, that when they die, they take their memories with them. So you have to right. do these interviews while you can. Exactly. Exactly. And people have been so gracious. I, I hate being in front of the camera, but, um, you know, when people find out what it's for and uh, people like remembering too. So it's, it's been really special to just sit and let someone tell me about their childhood and uh, get to preserve that cultural history. I found out, um, so Lola's family that was in Louisiana, they were sharecroppers, and uh, they were picking cotton, like, till the 60s, I think. Yeah. And yeah. I just had no idea. I, I truly, my jaw hit the floor when they told me. Cause I didn't even know that still happened because, again, I was raised in New York. And I was like, our, so I was like, so our cousins down there are picking cotton? Like, what? And uh, that was their experience. And so I, she got to share that, and, and I got to save it. Oh, that was <clears throat> that was common even over here. Well, we're we're here in the hill country in north central Louisiana, which is all the foothills of the Washita Mountains up in mm -hmm. uh, west, Ar west Arkansas and east Oklahoma. But over to the east of us in the Delta, where it's really flat, and it's what you it's what you think about when you see the Delta. You know, it's flat farmland for miles and miles and miles. Right. All you see. East Louisiana, East Arkansas, West Tennessee, et cetera. And my mom's stepmother, uh, my grandma's people, she, my, my granddad had remarried after my grandmother died in 1924. So my granddad remarried around 1930 or thereabouts. And my grandma's people were a mixed-race family. They were Native American and Anglo living over here in the Delta, and they were dirt poor. They lived in a cotton shack, and they were, yep. as far as we know, we're sure. I mean, Mama didn't remember much about them because this is her Again, her stepmother's people, but they seemed to have been sharecroppers. But they were—I know—they were very poor, and they had a dirt floor for part of their house. I mean, this was—you wow. know—the conditions where they lived. Yeah, over here east of Monroe, Louisiana, and I think east and kind of north of Monroe, but it was out around Del High or Rabel or somewhere that over that way, and they were very poor. You know, a lot, a lot of the sharecropping families lived in cabins back to pre-Civil War days. So, at one point, they were living by slave families, and then. You know, they're technically free, but they, you know, what do you know how to do? Well, I, I know right. this cotton stuff, so I stayed, but, you know. Right, right. It, it was really humbling, um, I think, just to kind of recognize, like, how hard life was for the family. Oh, we, we just had, we had no idea. And, and, you know, obviously every place people have their struggles with different kinds, but this was a, this was a, like, sun up, sun down. You were struggling. You were pushing. Everyone is in. And, um, it was just really special to me to to get those stories and, and and have them and know that like okay this is this is was a family experience too like we weren't there but it's still our family. So, they were they were escaping that life. I mean that's what a lot yeah. of them were doing. They were literally. I mean, and who can blame them? They were running away from it. Uh, yeah. Even apart from the you know the the racism they would have faced, the labor was backbreaking. Yeah. yeah. Sixty four. Uh, my parents grew up in the depression and. The families weren't sharecroppers. They owned the land that they were farming, but it 
still farming. <laughs> <My dad. Yeah. laughs> I had this joke. He was a Southern Baptist preacher, and he says, some people may think I went into the ministry to get off the farm. That's not true. There were 500 jobs that I worked at before I stayed on the farm. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, because I think now, you know, people have this romantic notion of being a farmer. And when I got, heard the nitty-gritty details and the and how hard it was to get food and um yeah, I, so I, I have kind of the question that I'd probably never get an answer to. And even if Lola was alive, she wouldn't answer it. That was her whole MO. But it's kind of like, why did you leave? And why did you leave this way? And uh, I think it's one of those things you just have to have a conjecture and just kind of wonder and guess. And, um, you know. Well, for lower class white people, the most valuable thing they have is their skin color. You know, wow. um, you get opportunities to go to education. You can live in better neighborhoods. You get the GI Bill so you can buy a house uh, when you come back from World War II. So it, it, it makes a material difference in your life, especially almost 100 years ago. With oh, yeah. uh, Jim Crow, there were big advantages just to being white, and white people like to deny it today, but yeah. no, it, it's still an advantage. Yeah, and, and it's hard because I um, I guess this is kind of the tension is I think she, she – I know she cared about her family. I know she stayed in touch with them, but she thought it was best for her children when she became a mother to, to try to, you know, the dad was white and push them out as white if she could. And I think she did that because she cared about her family. But now it's kind of like, well, are we white now? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't want to go and try to reclaim this experience that we didn't have. Like, I didn't have – my grandmother did, but I didn't. Um, right. I also don't want to reject it because it's like I wouldn't be here if, like, that slave didn't get off the boat from Africa. Like, our family's not here. You know, all these things, like, those points in history matter. And so that's kind of, I think, maybe that's a real experience. And I even struggle to say the word because I just, I don't know. I don't know yet. So well, This probably wasn't even a term you had heard except maybe for Creole cooking. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Project. <laughs> No, it's not. Uh, we uh, we were joking in our family because we were like, I think the word's Cajun. Like, we weren't sure. We had to, like, look it up on Wikipedia, um, you know, because, again, no context. Like, and so um, once we took the DNA test, um, there was significant African-American, significant Native American, Spanish, like, all the things that I guess you would expect wow. um, that my grandma had. Which and then looked like Louisiana, literally. I mean, it looked yeah. like, you know, yeah. part well, of the, they, I think, make up of Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, for the most part, Cajuns didn't make it up to Natchitoches. That's an old. That's the oldest city in the state. Um, so they've been here longer than the Cajuns and the Creoles. Well, in the whole Louisiana, in the whole Louisiana territory, it's the, yeah, you know, the oldest European. The oldest European. Cajun, right, right. Cajun is a subcategory of Creole, um, which was done partly for because of the poem Evangeline by Longfellow, partly because of racism because um, if you were happened if your side of the family was all white then you were Cajun if your side of the mm. family was mixed you were Creole so uh, there was that but you know it really it was the original Cajuns moved in and just assimilated to the Creole culture and then this was a romantic look backward if you <laughs> not right. create the whole Cajun identity so yeah it's right. really a fraught topic these days you can get yeah. in fights so easy <laughs> yeah that's why i like i'm so i'm so gentle and careful with like the terms i'm using because these are um strange terms for us like i i don't know and i still don't really know um as i'm working on this and interviewing my 
I interviewed my mom and her sisters and her cousins, and everyone has, was told kind of something different. And I don't really know where people identify still at this point. Like maybe when they see the finished project, I don't know where it will be. Um, I think that's kind of strange, too. I think most of the time you have a family unit. And you say, we are X. You know, we all know we're this. And that's kind of strange to think, well, we're splintering off in a lot of ways because nobody, there was nobody to say this is who we are. Um, right, except right. French. <laughs> so how many times have you been down uh, to the next area so far? So we've been twice, and we're coming in again in two weeks um, for a, a different film project that we got hired to do, but um, so it's not uh, for this project. Um, but it's, let me tell you, the first time I came down, I, I had been romanticizing going down to this place. I like had seen it in census records things for 20 years. I'm 36, so I've been doing this research for that long. And I just I was afraid to go down because I just didn't know like what if we go down there and there's there's nothing for us. So I just kind of put it off. Um, we went down and it was like I don't even know. I was overwhelmed. Like we got out of the car, I was just completely overwhelmed. Especially seeing that condition, seeing how old it was, and knowing that like my ancestors have seen the same. The same thing I'm looking at, they saw. And, uh, was, yeah, they've got a Creole cottage down by the Cane River on Front Street that is, you know, goes back to pre-state days. You know, it's an early, early uh, building. And the Fort St. Jean-Baptiste mm-hmm. that they built, but, you know, it's it's a very ac- accurate replica. Yeah. I think the, the Blueprint maybe comes from the second or third iteration of the fort, but it's not the fort from 1714. Right. But it, but it is one, I think. It's a replica of the one from the 1730s or 1740s. So, again, it's very pre-revolutionary war stuff still. Yeah. it was. We walked around it, and it was beautiful. I mean, it just – you can just feel the history, like even in you yeah. know, the cobblestone streets. I'm just like – I'm so happy it was preserved. I actually heard that um, there had been, like, an attempt to pave over – like the cobblestones at one point, and like people had like laid in the street to stop it. I mean, <laughs> that was no, so you're happy. Not. <laughs> well, I like I would be right there with you because that's everything. Those stones are everything, you know. How many people well, walk uh, on those stones? Like if I'm looking through a bunch of pictures, and I'm saying is that front street of the French Quarter, I look at the street because in the French Quarter they paved everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, modern asphalt or semi-modern, um, and um, the front street still has. The, the cobblestone brick type uh, yeah. uh, street, and they maintain that because of the history. So beautiful! It, it just—it was just such a gift to come down and have so much preserved for me. And I know it wasn't just for me, but to know that it was there, and now I have kids, so I can kind of redo this. Like I'm telling my kids about what's going on, so they have an idea. And so I didn't grow up having that security and you know your identity, but they will. And right. break the cycle of whatever happened, you know. So have you been to some of the old home places that, uh, you know, different people of the family had been growing up in? Uh, either now they lived there or back in the day they, their folks lived there. Not yet. Um, I uh, There's just so much to see. I have a really long, long list. And um, there's a lot of plantations that I want to go to because I was able to trace ancestors to those. Like Melrose, I still haven't gone there. Yeah. Um, you know, but uh, a lot so of the family, clear. yeah, like there's, I, I, so, yeah, there's a lot on the list. So I think we're going to have to keep coming 
back down, <laughs> checking uh, things off. For our listeners who may not know, they were a family that were liberated very early and built up wealth over a long period of time. They built one of the oldest African-American churches in, mm-hmm. in the country, the St. Augustine Catholic Church, and um, sat up front because they paid for it. <laughs> right, right. i tell you a funny story that I found out about them and my family. So my fifth great-grandfather, now my French is not good, so you may have to correct it, but I believe his name is pronounced Noel Coinbe, and uh, he was born into slavery. And um, he was promised that when his, his, his father was the, I guess, the original owner, which sounded crazy to me, but that's what it was. And then when he was sold to his new owner, the bill of sale said when the new owner dies, you will be free. So the new owner dies in 1822, and he's not released. And so he has to sue the Metoyer family because they were holding the estate and they were keeping him enslaved. And then he won the lawsuit, and then the, that family had to pay for the legal charges, um, which is just really interesting. Uh, you can look up if the lawsuit um, is available online. It's Coyne versus, I think it's Metoyer. Oh, Metoyer. Metoyer, Yeah, yeah. And, um, and what's the date of that? It's 1820-some-odd? Um, 1822 is when he sued for his freedom. So he ended up winning his freedom. He was considered a you know, person of color. I don't not black, no, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but uh, he won, and then after that, he manumitted his six-year-old daughter for $350, and he paid it in two installments. And then he went on to get a land grant from the federal government for 40 acres in Natchitoches, where he started his own farm. And I'm like, those are the kinds of stories where I'm like, we need to keep this story. We need to know this story. It was almost lost. And... Uh, there's a story rather like that, and that's remarkable, um, your particular story. There's one rather like it about not quite 100 years later, but it's around. The, it's right after the time of the, uh, what is it, the 1903 exposition, maybe up in St. Louis, but there was a woman who uh, is a direct, was, she's deceased now, obviously, but she was a direct descendant of the founder. No, she was seeing a direct descendant of the founder of Monroe, uh, Don Juan Field, John John mm-hmm. Field, who was working on behalf of the Spanish government uh, to he founded Monroe back in seventeen eighty five. So it's a it's a very you know, very post you know, immediately after the Revolutionary War, you know, post war settlement. And so this guy was a descendant of Don Juan Field. This woman uh, he was seeing her and she was a woman of mixed race, just just like your heritage, I mean just like your lineage. And they wind up because of the anti-miscegenation laws or whatever. They couldn't get right. married in the state of so they go up here to Missouri. You actually could get married in Missouri of all places. So they go wow. up here to Missouri and get married, and not long after they marry, he dies young. I don't know if he had a heart attack or what, but he died. And this is okay. after 1903, but before 1915, we'll say. So in the time right before World War One starts. And so his people began to come after her to try to seize their property, seize that property in Monroe. Uh, they had a property right, not terribly far from the Washtenaw River, and the legend had it that she would come up the river from, she was from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And this was how they had met originally, was in New Orleans. And so supposedly he had a tunnel uh, dug from the river to the house. And Bruce, I don't know if you'd heard, I think you've heard this story years ago. <laughs> No, you were the one that told me. Yeah, but the owners of the house told me this, supposedly. <laughs> wow. But there was a tunnel dug from the river, from the docks on the Washtenaw River there at the little port, 
for her to be, you know, secretly spirited into his house. Well, they wow. found part of the tunnel, didn't they? Wow. Supposedly, yeah, the tunnel was underneath the sink in the house. Part of it was. Oh, and what's now the, the, in, the, in the kitchen. Well, anyway, she goes and takes this to court, but she was smart. She didn't go and do this in Washington Parish. She went over here to Bossier Parish, the Benton, which is across the river from Shreveport. <laughs> and so she goes and sues, and the judge was no friend to, you know, equality or anything like that, well, races or gender or anything like that. But he was about following the law to his credit. He wow. said, well, we're going to get to the bottom of this. So what he did, she claims that she's married. He reads this in the court records. He says, I'm going to appoint, as he did, I'm going to appoint investigators to go up to, to Missouri and find out the, the truth and find out the skinny to see if she's indeed married. Wow. Which means it's a legal contract. Wow. They go up to St. Louis and they, guess what they find out? The lady was married. Wow. And so they come back with this news to the woman, uh, the field widow, and I can't, her name escapes me off the top of my head, but this deserves a, a, a film treatment, really, and at the very least, a, you know, like a book. Oh, anyway, yeah. they come back to North Louisiana, they find out she's married, and the judge rules in her favor, she wins the property by law. Wow. wow. She's out of the hands of the other family members. And not long after that, she winds up selling off the property, and she picks up her family. This this is where the story kind of links up with your great-grandmother's. But she uh, packs her bags and gets her then two children had been born by that time they move out to California. Wow. You know, it's funny you say that because uh, I've actually met cousins whose families were from Camp Nacogdoches area also, and they went to California, and they're, like, kind of on a similar journey. And so it looks like there's kind of just, like, heading to the coast, like getting as far away um, yeah, yeah. Whatever it was that you needed to get away from. Well, uh, he was lucky too. Keep in mind, he was—you know—he was not a, a poor guy. So, to speak. my grandmother's people. I mean, this guy had—I don't know if he was wealthy, but he definitely was well healed, and he was also a—you know—that's a person of status. And the family was not about to accept a woman of of mixed race into that family. Right. And this, so this is after 1903, and that's a significant date. That is the anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase. Family. Yeah, they had that big expo up in St. Louis to celebrate. Wow. The place that left uh, Louisiana tended to go either west or north, and so they have these communities in, like, Chicago and out in mm-hmm. California. Going to New York was a bit – that's the only thing unusual, but uh, <laughs> it may not be that unusual. We may just kind of – them across uh, well, there's another reason for that you know why it's not just to go to the big city it turns out there's rail lines to those places yeah. and i heard this wow. on a, on a yeah, I, I was wondering on how they got there yeah okay. i saw this on a documentary on youtube they went to those places because they had rail connections so this makes sense so why you go to chicago well there's you, you can hop the train out of new orleans wow you go to the west coast in those days, there was passenger train service across. In that, nowadays, there's not. But in those days, you could go across North Louisiana by passenger train. So they hop the train and go out to L.A. or San Diego or wherever. Wow. And, um, there's this little town on the west bank of, of New Orleans called West We Go. But if you look at the name, it's West We Go. And it's where they started the uh, <laughs> train that went all the way to the uh, Pacific. Yeah. Um, that was the common pass. When you could, when you could afford a train, um, right, was to go either west or north because that was where the lines. They don't have that many diagonal lines. Even today, it's right. a lot more traffic along, say, I twenty or I ten, than 
going north and south from Louisiana. It's just like two different worlds, all oil and vinegar. So. Wow. Well, I would love to ask you guys, actually, because um, this is – I have had a lot of brick walls that I've hit with this, as you can imagine. And you're talking about, you know, how it's illegal for people of color to marry, um, you know, people who are white, I guess, up until a certain point. And I've kind of wondered about that because my great-grandparents were married in Louisiana, but I cannot find a marriage certificate anywhere. And so I've always kind of wondered, like, and I feel like they should because they got married in 1920. So people were, you know, these things are being recorded. Well, where is it? I can't find it. Yeah, and, uh, probably not in Louisiana if that's the case because, again, that would have been illegal. And I, I wish I had my – my cousin is a genealogist up in St. Louis, and she would know where to tell you to search. Really? But, wow. Yeah, I mean, but, but yeah, but she, she's from North Louisiana, from near Shreveport, in fact. But, I mean, yeah, I don't – I wouldn't know where to tell you. Just It likely is not in this state. I mean, I might be wrong, but I'm thinking – But it was illegal up until – because that's what I was – I yeah. felt yeah. like it was, it was yeah. you know – It was illegal. Yeah, you know, they might – is it possible they got married up in New York? Mm, no, I don't think so because they had a child in Louisiana. I mean, I guess it's possible, but, yeah, this, you know, it, given the time frame. And that's right. what I was wondering. Maybe this wasn't on the books and on the this books. This woman, her, her name, just, just, I just then recalled it, and I should have remembered it earlier because she shared the name with my mom who just died you know, three months ago this week. But uh, her name was Inez Schmidt, of all things. So she didn't have a French name. Mm-hmm. Uh, like some of the, you know, obviously, you know, your, you know, Creole type names would have been like something French or Spanish. This woman's dad, I don't know if he was, if both her parents were mixed race or maybe only one was, but anyway, her name was Inez Smith, which is okay. of course Agnes Smith if you translate it, you know, right. <laughs> English. but I mean, yeah, her name was was Smith of all things. It was German, but she was Creole. And, uh, and But as I said, they had to go to Missouri to get married. Now, this could have been the case with your family. They may have gone to Missouri, for all we know. And uh, also, that would have been the closest place to Louisiana to get married. Also, they may have had what's called a marriage of the heart, which they were <laughs> actually uh, illegally married, because um, you couldn't be. Um, so, you know, unless they got a ceremony later, uh, when, yeah. when they moved to a place where you could. Yeah. If that's what I've been kind of wondering. Um, and to add, like, I feel like salt to the wound for all of us. So when my great-grandmother, they had eight kids, um, my great-grandfather died suddenly, very young. And so she was a widower with eight kids, and she was up there alone. And the Irish family oh, turned them away because they were against them being married, and they said they didn't want to help any Indian kids. That's how they were referring to them. And so she had no help from the Irish family. And um, so I feel like I, I kind of was wondering about the marriage thing, too. And then when I heard that, I was like, okay, they probably didn't get married in New York either. Like, no no family support. Um, so, you know, but the records, it's like they may not exist. You, you're chasing something that actually may not exist, and you don't know. So. And- I guess it's kept in the individual courthouses where the marriage took place, although a lot of that is online these days, so you might be able to, you know, search for it that way. Yeah, um, I'm still on the hunt, so if any, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you've got blues out there. Yeah, yeah. wow. Well, it's just a, it's amazing, this the struggle for these things that you just, you know, and I, again, I'm just so happy to learn the kind of people that I'm coming from because... You know, now it's easy to go on YouTube and say, hey, I'm researching my mixed race heritage, and, and, and it's not dangerous to me and the same way that it was to my family, you know, and it just, I'm just, 
I can't believe the things that they went through. It's um, the only. You know. it, it, it was like the election of Barack Obama took the lid off of that simmering like racial hatred, and that's just out there. We've got the Berkshire in chief as president, and um, a lot more open racism, um, openly trying to suppress the black vote. So, you know. It, it, I mean, it's not like it was, but it's not like it should be. Either. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think that's kind of you're seeing like, okay, like we are in, at least when I compare, you know, one to one with my family, like I am in a better spot in some ways. Yeah, in a lot of ways, but I do feel like because people had to hide who they were, like there's a lot that's lost too. So I feel like we've got this opportunity that I was given that we wouldn't have had otherwise, but at what cost? And I feel like that's kind of. Not that I can go back and change history, but I sometimes do wrestle with what would it feel like to have have all of who you are and, and know all of it, and how much yeah. would that help you, too? You, you can know. at least uh, reunite with your uh, long-lost family in Louisiana. I, I was going to ask, did, are there any family dishes that have been passed down from an academic stuff that, like, you know, you're your uh your great grandmother made and then your grandmother things like that or, or did they leave behind the food waste too? So I, I asked the same question. Literally I was like, I need to figure out the food waste because I didn't feel like anything had been passed down. And in one of the shorts that I did, um so these are separate from the episodes, these are just kind of like interesting tidbits I've kind of picked up along the way. And um so our cousin told us that they used to make tamales and they had the matate imano stone, which is the yeah, stone the that you, yes, you're grinding the corn to make like the masa flour essentially. And they, she said they would make tamales for two days, and they had like a split pig head in a pot, and they would like simmer that down and grind it, and all of this stuff. I had no idea that we had any. Our family had any traditional foods because um, we weren't given any. And uh, so it was really meaningful to me to find out, like, my family had been doing this for hundreds of years. And we still have right. the stone. My cousin has the stone. She's in Monroe. And uh, she has it in her closet. And she said it's been passed down for probably four generations, five generations at this point. So it's hundreds of years old. And uh, we had no idea. But it was sitting, you know, all this information just sitting down in Louisiana. And uh, right. it was there to be found. <laughs> it's still right. there. And the tamales are famous in the area, but they're kind of an outlier for Louisiana in general because they were brought up by the Spanish and uh, uh, the Spanish, um, uh, the, the Native Americans that came along with them. So um, right. they brought the tamales up to um, the Natchitoches area. And really, the Wally tamales, yeah. thing, and they have this Wally tamales. Yeah, some relative of my sister was making those things over there, and I don't know. I think it's some maybe her dad's family. I'm not really sure about all that. See, I mean, truth in advertising, I'm adopted, and so I've been mm-hmm. on a lot of the quest your own, and it was a different story for adoptees wow. uh, because I was born at a time when that was a stigma uh, to be from, you know, the product of some so-called illicit relationship, which yeah. is what I come out of. Because uh, I come along about 30 years before you do, and so consequently, uh, I mean, I was conceived literally right before the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that was a very different. That was in the height of civil rights, I and mean, the civil rights is right. you know it today, the modern movement, because it had gone on before that, but the modern civil rights movement was beginning to heat up, 
1962. And I'm born into that. And the only reason we found my biological family was the fact that, that the woman, well, in those days, Louisiana, you could get the final decree of adoption paper with the child's birth name on it. You can't do that anymore. Wow. Wow. And so I was born, yeah, I was born right under the gun about five or six years before they changed the law where you could still get those records. And I had, my mother had them. She kept them, thank God. And they had an odd name, which is actually pretty common up where you're from. And the name was Culver, C-U-L-V-E-R. Okay. And there's a big chain, I understand, of restaurants like Hamburger Joint. Yes. <laughs> but really, that's, these people came out of this old man came down here, and he wasn't old at the time. He was only a year older than you are now, but he came out here in the very last year or two of Reconstruction. And we don't know why he came down here, but somehow or another he landed in North Louisiana, and I'm wow. his you know, multiple great-grandson, I think third great-grandson. Wow. Uh, wow. Or second or third great-grandson. Yeah, so how, why did he land down here? Who knows? Uh, I know a lot of people came down after the Civil War because they were seeking their fortune. And yeah. he may have been one of those, but why did he come here? Why didn't he go to, you know, Tennessee or North Carolina or Texas or whatever? And he somehow or another landed, up, landed here. And there's a mysterious statement by my biological mother's cousin. So this woman would be my well, pretty close relative of mine. She'd be my first cousin once removed. Mm-hmm. And she's still living. She's in her early 70s, I think. And I've met her a couple of times. I don't really know her. Per se, but I mean, I, I have met her, and she said that something about a very cryptic remark about about their their great grandfather. I guess is who this guy was, but their great grandfather's quote military service in Texas. And the only mm. thing I can point to is maybe he served in the Civil War over in Texas. Wow. Maybe in the Union Army. I don't know wow. that because her again her statement was very ambiguous or very very short on information. She just said his wow. military service in Texas. That makes me wonder because I actually found um, my great. Great, great uncles were fought for the Confederate Army, and they're from the Natchitoches area. They were Perot's, and they were um, in scriptures uh, men of color. They were free men of color, and and I was like not really sure what to do with that information, so I had to like kind of research some more. Um, I believe Elizabeth Stone Mills has um, a little excerpt of those documents um, in it, and like you just don't really know what to do with that. He's like, well, this doesn't what like. <laughs> And I think uh, you start to realize, like, not all of the information of the family is always passed down to because maybe people are just saying, yeah, we don't want to pass this down. I don't really know. Um, but I, I, I wonder about that, if maybe it's And tell everybody similar. what the, what the, what the uh, surname was again. It's Perot. I say Perot because I'm from New York, but I found out in Natchitoches they say Perot, and it's Which P-E-R-O-T. Is, yeah, it's Ross, like Ross Perot because That's it's believed that he – he may be one of your distant relatives. But so I'll tell you, my, my uncle told me that he is, but the, he doesn't show up to the reunions because we're, we're not the white ones. There's a theater. I want to say he's maybe from the Texarkana area up here northwest of Bruce and me because there's a famous uh, and very nice old restored theater, the Pearl Theater up there. It's a big show place up in Tex, you know, Texarkana. And I yeah. think it's on the Texas side of town, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, but anyway, yeah, he. I, I want to say he was from up that way, like northeast Texas, up above Louisiana. Yeah, yeah, so, there, there's a lot of them. So, do any of the branches of your family um, have um, like big family reunions that you could go to and meet some of? You know, you can meet a lot of people in a short amount of time at something like that. Yeah, um, so there are a lot. I've actually, um, and I'm on all the like special face group. Facebook group uh, pages for the family reunions. 
Um, and I've gotten Good. to connect to so many people that way. I love that that happens. Um, again, this is like a, a very different cultural experience to me. I don't feel like that kind of stuff happens in New York like this. Um, so it's just very different to have someone say, yeah, you're kin. Come on in. Like, we want, we want you to be a part of this. And um, so I have, and it's been amazing. And, uh, and you learn so much, too. People are sending me pictures. and Right. Just that's which is invaluable. I feel like pictures are, like, worth everything because, you know, pre-digital time, the stuff could be gone in a heartbeat. So um, having those has been really great. And I've gotten a lot of those from, like you're saying, the family groups. So one of my cousins has just um, issued a two-volume collection of stories by her grandmother, my aunt, um, who's just, you know, the family genealogist. Um mm. And uh, the title is, Have I Told You This? <laughs> Something she says. But, you know, I've ordered, you know, I've ordered the book. They're who I am. Uh, and yeah. most of these stories I've never heard because I didn't have the patience to hang around the table. Um, but that's really great. Uh, um, you know, just going back to pre-Civil War days. Um, yeah. We want to thank Danielle for coming on our podcast and uh, uh, sharing with us her research. And I believe she's updating her research pretty often on um, YouTube. Yeah, it's like a video diary. You know, you can yeah. watch her about a time or two. It's about, it's about every week, every few days even. She's going on YouTube and posting a new video. So she found something that... She's brand new to her. If she learns more, we learn more. So, uh, yeah, uh, follow her if you can. I think you'll be uh, happy you did. Now, in um, fact, I think she's coming down here from, she's living in Tennessee, and mm-hmm. I think she's coming down here to Natchitoches within, is it within the next few weeks? I mean, really, it's pretty soon she's coming down. Remember that too, yeah. Well, for the Lucian Anthology Podcast, I'm very sneaky. I'm Steve Payne. We certainly do want to thank Danielle for stopping in with us this week. I would uh, urge people, I'm doing a little bit of this myself, albeit not in a, a grand way like Danielle's doing. I'm not, you know, filming anything, but I am combing through some archives and some records online. If you are interested in genealogy, you know, dive right in. There are all sorts of resources online. If you check in your local uh, parish, you know, archives at the courthouse or county archives if you're out of state, uh, do do go and, and search and come through those things because there are all sorts of resources available for people that are interested. Uh, also, libraries do this kind of thing. Uh, usually, too, your courthouse will have various kinds of sources like land rolls and you know uh, deeds and bequests and that kind of you know wills and so forth. So again, there are all sorts of resources by the hundreds, if not thousands, where you can go and do some searching and very quickly fall down a rabbit hole. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Again, again, thank you, uh, Danielle, for coming here. I can't remember which one of my professors said that. But it was definitely true, you know. It is. Well, and, 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 and be prepared, as Danielle is doing, for finding revelations, uh, you know, in your search, because you will find some things that will kind of be, you know, it's just like doing scientific research. It'll be what's called intuitive research, which kind of confirms your hypothesis. But you'll right. do stuff that's counterintuitive that don't confirm. They, in fact, deny the hypothesis. So you right. will find some some revelatory information all the time. So be prepared for anything that you might find, as, as Danielle is finding. So, again, we thank her for joining us this week. And we also want to thank all of you for listening in. And we hope that you'll join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now. <laughs>